Open up your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is going to be um, part one of a two-part series on David and Goliath. And last week, we saw this, that God is relentlessly looking for men, women, students, children whose hearts are after him. They are after him. In fact, in Chronicles, it says that the eyes of God, they don't just look to and fro, they are running to and fro to find someone, anyone whose heart is after him. And so the idea here is that God really wants to come alongside of people and support their ministry and support their life. Um, But here's the deal. Is God finding too many people whose hearts are after him? And the idea is no. His eyes are actually going back and forth and he's looking in person after person across the entire world and say, heart and your heart and your heart and your heart and your heart. And finally he gets across the entire nation of Israel and he stops on one boy, David. And here's what we learned about the heart last week is that the heart is not measured, the heart of a man or a woman is not measured in intentions or dreams, but in decisions. It's not measured in your intentions or your dreams, but in your actual decisions. And this week, at the top of your notes, you can fill in the blanks here, and here's what I want you to write. Your heart is the lens through which you see the world. Your heart is the lens through which you see the world. When I was in eighth grade, I sat next to Elizabeth Zelenok in the front row of our class, and I saw the teacher in the first day of school write words on the board, and I looked at her and I said, what does that say? And what, something happened to my eyes through the summer. Apparently, I became blind. So for about a month, I would take her glasses, and after she was done copying stuff on the board, and then I would look at it. And finally, I got to a point where I got home, and I said, Mom, I need some glasses. And uh, I remember when I first put on her glasses, and I looked at the board, and I thought to myself, this is reality? Like, what world was I living in? And finally, when I actually got my actual prescription, and they put the contacts in, and they said, what do you think of this? The entire world unfolded before me. Colors were brighter. Things were sharper. I could see people all the way in the back of the class. It was actually an amazing thing. My brother, my older brother, when he got um, glasses after he had not had them, I think, ever, and he looks at me and he says, dude, did you know that you can see in people's houses when you drive by? I was like, that's creepy, dude. Um, Anyways, your your heart is the lens through which you see the entire world. And so the heart after God does not just act differently, but it experiences and intakes all of life very, very differently. Um, A person whose heart is after God, uh, you are uniquely distinct in not just your behavior, the things you do, but in your attitude. Um, It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And so all of these things are happening, all of these good things and these bad things and these neutral things, and all of them are being processed through the lens of your heart. And, and, and as you know, when your lenses don't work, everything is fuzzier and you trip over yourself and you do a ridiculous thing. Men and women who have a heart after God are unique and distinct They are weird to the rest of the world. They see everything differently. And what I want to ask you to do this morning is very simply ask yourself this. What do you see? What do you see? 
And we're going to look at David and Goliath, and we're going to look at what set David apart. And it was his heart that was revealed, not just in what he did, but how he, and how he perceived everything in front of him. And he was unique and distinct amongst all the men of Israel. Uh, many of you know um, what I'm talking about when we say the heart, of, uh, uh, the heart is the lens through which we see the world. Have you ever met somebody who has an angry heart? They're just always angry and bitter. And everything that happens, it's always somebody else's fault or God's fault or somebody didn't do what they're supposed to do. And, and everything, even when it's not even bad, it's filtered through this angry lens. There's the critical heart that no matter what happens, I mean, you could win a million dollars and they would still find fault with it. And the issue is not with what's coming in. The issue is that it's all being filtered through a critical heart. Even as I say these words, of course, some of you are thinking about um, other people. Shame on you. Uh, the cynical heart, always sees the worst possible odds, right? I mean, they could meet the girl of their dreams and say, yeah, but she's probably like this. Like, like everything gets turned negative because uh, their heart is the lens through which they see the entire world. It's shaping and filtering everything. The insecure heart sees always a threat. I know what you meant. I know what you meant. I know what they're trying to do. They're always out to get me. Like, there's this threat that they're in because the heart is the lens through which we see the whole world. The sexually immoral heart sees people as objects for pleasure because their heart is filtering the whole world. And I want to ask you, what does your heart see? On the other hand, the content heart looks at all of the things they don't have. They look at their friends and neighbors who have twice or three times as much as they do, and they look back and they say, I can't believe God would give me any of this. And they see the world differently. The loving heart looks at people and they start seeing people through the heart of God. And they see even those people who are so rebellious and sinful that God's heart loves them. And because they're starting to have God's heart, they're filtering the world and seeing people through his lens. What should be, for normal people, their enemy becomes somebody they pray for and start to grow affection for and love for. The peaceful heart. Um, all of the world is chaotic. Everything is insane around us. But the peaceful heart knows this. God is over all things, and he holds all things together. And I can rest because he is in control. And the lens through which we see these events um, is a reflection of what's really in our hearts. And so this morning, here's what's happening. The author for Samuel puts in, right after we meet David, the story of David and Goliath. And I want to tell you why he did this. He did this because he is trying to give the readers for all generations a snapshot into what does it look like for a man to have a heart that is toward God or after God. So you meet David and we hear that he's got a heart after him, but what does that look like? Give me the nuts and bolts of what does it look like for being a man whose heart is after God's heart. And so here's what we're gonna see in David this morning. This text is here to show you what a heart after his own heart does and how it perceives the world. We're gonna see David's heart laid before us by his actions and also by his perceptions, by the things he does and by his attitudes. Attitude. And we're going to look at this, and my hope for you is that as we look at David's heart, that our hearts would be on full display before each of us, not your spouse's heart or your kid's heart, your heart. And when we find cracks in our heart, when we find areas of our heart that are not lined up with God's heart, we get on our knees and we say, Jesus, forge my heart. So you guys ready to do that? You ready to look at David's heart with me? Good. Um, open up first uh, Samuel. 
17, and here's the um, context, the, Philippi, the Philippians. The Philistines um, are a, a, a sea people from the west. They've come from the Mediterranean, and they have landed um, on Israel's soil. They are working their way in. They are building a home for themselves. They're having children, and uh, this is a, a seafaring people who wants to take over and move um, west. And so what we find here is that Saul was the king who they said, give us a king like the nations to fight our battles for us. And Saul's job was to fight the Philistines. But every time Saul had an opportunity to defeat the Philistines, what did he do? He ran away. He got scared. In fact, it wasn't until his son Jonathan fought the Philistines for him that Israel had any victory. And so we find here is that when Saul looks at the Philistines, his world, his lens, which is dictated by his heart, is he experiences fear. He sees insurmountable odds. He sees people who have greater tech. They could smelt iron. They were stronger than them. They had greater forces, greater numbers, greater organization. And he looks at this and he says, this is too much. And he runs the opposite direction. And so we see what he looks like. Israel looks at these Philistines and they melt with fear. And we'll find out why in a minute. The Philistines see accurately weakness on Saul's part. So they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and now they feel like they're ready to go to battle because they're confident that they can win. Let's look at verse number three. We want to start off there. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. This is the Valley of Elah, which basically is two hills or mountains on each side. And in the middle, is, it's, it's a wadi. It's actually just a grassy area um, that is really beautiful. And on the one side of it, there is a creek bed where, um, hint, hint, next week David will find some stones. So they are standing miles apart from each other. And the Philistines are over on one side and the Israelites are on another side. And here's what would actually happen. They would come out every morning and all of these thousands and thousands and thousands of warriors would march out. I mean, you would just hear this armor clanging, people chanting, and there would be a war cry on each side. But something different is going to happen with the Philistines, and we're going to watch as this unfolds. And the author of this book is going, to, is going to pen this in a way that he wants you, by reading this, to feel what the Israelites felt. He wants to put you in their shoes so you can see the world through the lens of their fearful, insecure hearts. And here's what happens in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, which literally means a man of the between. And so what would happen is this idea of the champion is he's the biggest, strongest, deadliest warrior you have. And let's be honest, who wants to go to battle and see thousands of people executed and dying and suffering on a field? Nobody. And so they're smart. They say, let's throw out your best versus our best. We'll have a duel, and whoever wins, wins the battle, and everyone else becomes their slaves. And so what happens here is I want you just to imagine the scenario. They're chanting, and then both sides have their war chants, and they're loud, and there's metal clashing, and they're stomping their feet, and there's thousands and thousands of men. And all of a sudden, the Philistine camp just starts to separate, and you just hear them chanting more, Goliath, Goliath, Goliath. And this man, this gargantuan, monstrous human being emerges forth, and he melts the hearts of Israelites with fear. Watch what the text says. Whose height was six cubits and a span. 
Meaning, uh, the author wants you to know we're not just throwing out random numbers, okay? Uh, we actually want to be really specific. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, these biblical authors are not prone to exaggeration, and we know that there are some physical conditions that can leave men to be growing at exponential rates at a very young age. I think of Andre the Giant and a number of other people on recorded history who have been upwards of in the upper eight feet tall. I mean, this is a huge, huge man. And it says his name is Goliath of Gath. And this is important, and I want you to catch this because you're going to read over that. Gath is not far away from where this battle is taking place, which means this. Goliath was born and raised on Israel's territory in a city named Gath, meaning he's not fighting for someone else's land. He's fighting for the land he was born in. And that's how long these people had been here. So this is a very personal battle. He's fighting for his home, okay? And, and so we get nine feet, nine inches tall, verse five. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shackles of bronze, about 125 or 126 pounds, okay? Have you ever picked up anything that weighs 125 pounds, let alone thrown it over your body? Mark Luce is the only one who can do that. Can I get an amen, Mark? Right. Um, I mean, that is an incredible amount of weight, and that's just the coat, okay? There's more. There's the helmet. There's other stuff coming. In verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. Now, don't think of a javelin like what you throw. Think of like a sword with a curved edge. This is going to be big, strong. I mean, it just pulls it out and does whatever he wants with that. Now, I love this, verse 7. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, meaning it is big. Okay, this man's hands are huge. This is not a small... Um, uh, spear, but catch this: this spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, or 15 pounds. I picked up my 15-pound weight at home, and I just kind of like mimicked. I'm like, what would this feel like to throw? All I'm saying is, it's really hard to throw 15 pounds, let alone for that to be made out of iron, which the author is trying to tell you that their tech, their technology, is infinitely better than Israel's. They are on the cutting edge of iron technology. Um, and so all of this is meant to, to put fear in front of you. But not only that, at the end of verse 7, it says this, And his shield bearer went before him, not his armor bearer, his shield bearer. Goliath had one human being, designated for standing in front of him with a huge shield. So I imagine as the crowds part and as they're shouting, Goliath, and the crowds, and I wanted Brian to get me some kind of voice, like audible thing that would make me really deep, right? And uh, so they're shouting, and he comes out, and in front of him is this dude with a shield, and then three feet above him is Goliath from his chest up to his head, and he is just ironclad, he is bronze all over, iron tech, and all you see, all that's visible is his face. That's it. This is meant to instill deep fear in the reader. What would you do if you stood face to face with that? What would it reveal about your heart? You'd probably be petrified. Can I get an amen? No one? Just me? Awesome. All right, good. Verse 8. He stood... And he shouts to the rank of Israel. So they're marching up to battle. They part ways. Everybody's quiet. He steps up, I imagine, and being 10 or 15 feet away from them. And he shouts, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? 
And are you not servants, slaves, read that into it, of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Now, God said, we're going to choose a man, right? Or they said they're going to choose a man who's like the nations. And he's taking their words, he's throwing it back in them and says, choose a man for yourselves who's going to come fight me. Verse 9, I love the taunt. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And he's not done. Verse 10, he goes on. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man. Who's a man in this place? Who's man enough to stand up to me? I imagine his words are like thunder and they are deep and they are loud. That we may fight together. Now catch verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 16 says this, that the, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 40 days, every day, 80 times, he gets up and he mocks Israel's God. He mocks King Saul. He mocks these people. And apparently David had not heard about this yet. But what we see in all of Israel and Saul is that the heart is the lens through which they see the world. And God's looking for a king. He's looking to and fro. His eyes are running back and forth. And none of the men of valor, not King Saul, not even righteous, valiant, strong Jonathan is willing to go fight this guy. And the Lord is stepping back and he's saying, who is willing to stand up and face what is before me, a peon? Who is willing to believe me? Are you not children of the Most High God? What is this? If I told you I'm going to give you victory, why are you afraid? And he looks, and he looks, and it's not on the battlefield that he finds the man after God's own heart. It's in the shepherding field. And it's miles, it's 12, it's 13 miles away from this place. And he finds this little kid, young man, young boy, David. Now, the next section is uh, verses 12 to 22. And the author puts this here for your benefit because what the author wants you to know is he wants to give you a snapshot into David's heart. He wants to give you a look into his faithfulness. And here's a couple things that you should know. Verse 15, it says, But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem, 12 to 13 miles. And what the author wants you to know is that David is a faithful shepherd because he's been called into the king's service, right, to play the, the harp for him and to because he's been losing his mind. And so David comes in and brings some sanity to Saul. But he's also going back and forth and taking care of his sheep because he's a loyal shepherd. He loves his sheep. And we find here in this part of the story that David is faithful to everyone in leadership over him. He's faithful to Saul. He's faithful to take care of his sheep. In verse 17, David's dad calls on him to do some business. Why David when he's already pulled in so many different directions? He's got other brothers. But here's what we know. David is faithful. He tells him, bring some food um, to your brothers. Find out how they're doing. Bring some food to the generals. And David says, dad, whatever you say, I'll go do it. We find David serving his brothers. We find him excited to go run up to them and say, brothers, how's it going? I'm your little bro. This is so cool. And uh, we see what David's heart is. It's just to serve. And God, he's looking, and he finds this kid, and he says, I can use that. That's something I can use. And I'm going to shame everybody through the faith, through the lens, through the heart of this boy. Go to verse 20 with me. And David came to the encampment as the host, which is a word for armies, was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And 
Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And now David left the things in charge of the keeper of baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. All right, David's a young man, and he sees two armies and their war cry. This is like Braveheart times a thousand and way more cool, okay? I mean, these guys are shouting, and David's like, I've got to see this, because what little boy growing up in this culture, or really any culture, does not have this little warrior inside of him, and he wants to see what is happening, and he runs up, and he's got an excuse. I've got food. Dad told me to come check on you, and, and the brothers are all getting ready, and what David doesn't know is that for 40 days and 40 nights, this gargantuan mammoth of a human being gets up, taunts God's people, taunts the king of Israel, but more despicably taunts the God of Israel. And verse 23 says, and he, David, talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words before. And I want you to catch these. And David heard him. I mean, he saw him. Don't get me wrong. Everybody saw him. But David heard him. And this is very distinct. Go to, back to verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, what did they do? They were dismayed and greatly afraid. David hears it, and he's not dismayed. He's not afraid. He's actually enraged. I think that rhymes. We're going to quote that. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. I want you to imagine, David, you're this kid. You've heard about the men of valor. You've heard about Jonathan. You've looked up to your brothers who are in the king's army. and They're fighting for Israel in the name of God. And you hear the war cry. You, hear, you see the battle lines coming up against each other. You see this man come out. And you are so excited because who's going to fight? Is it going to be my big brother? Is it going to be Jonathan? Who's going to stand up and defend the Lord's uh, name? Who's going to vindicate his reputation? Who's going to shame these people who are mocking God? And here's what they do. They run away. And he's looking and saying, really? For real? You're going to run away? You're going to act like you're scared? Okay, last time I checked, your children of the, quote, living God, their God doesn't even exist. It's a demon. I mean, it's, it's not even real. It's a demon masquerading as something bigger than it is. You serve the God who's alive, and you're afraid of this guy? And so David is frustrated, and we're going to watch as this um, unfolds. But verse 25, And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel. And at this point, David's like, Are you kidding me? Like, I fight people like this or animals like this all the time. This is easy. Just send someone out. Either way, the Lord will protect you. And his brothers are not happy with this at all, at all. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Embarrassment. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, remember when we shared with you in the Saul series that the first words that come out of someone's mouth tell you about the state of their heart? These are the first words that came out of David's mouth in all of recorded scripture. And you know what Samuel's trying to tell us by putting these words down? That when David sees, when the man of God sees, when a heart that is after God, God's heart sees the name of God, the reputation of God, the glory of God at stake, they actually get upset. It frustrates them. Uh, and he is sitting here and he's like, I, I will vindicate the name of the Lord. This is an uncircumcised Philistine and you're going to let him mock the people of God, the king of God, and the living God? What is, going, what is going on here? 
And the reward, verse 25 tells us that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. I would hate to be the daughter and who's like, hey, if you guys go fight, you get me. And everyone's like, yeah, no, sorry. That's <laughs> not going to take it. Exactly what happened. But the brothers, let's go back to the brothers, okay? So um, the brothers um, are, I'll just give you one word, they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed. They're a little bro with such high hopes and expectations. Watch them run like children away from a monster. Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Any youngest children in the room, by the way? Anyone? Yeah? All right. You know these words? What have I done now? Look at that. It's like right there. Like, seriously? Like, my goodness. It was just a word. Are you kidding? But here's what happens in David. He does not give up. David is a man, a young man, after God's own heart. And he is going to defend the name of God. And so here's what David does, is he starts going group, camp to camp to camp. And it's like he's saying this, hey, anybody, anybody, anybody? Do you trust God? Are you gonna let this person mock God? What about this camp? What about this camp? Finally, word gets back to Saul that this kid is in the camp and he's telling people and asking them, who's gonna stand up to this guy? And what we um, find here is uh, verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and Saul sent to go get David. I want to um, close with these final words of David. And David's heart is going to be on full display for you to see. If you wonder, what does it look like to be a man or a woman, a young kid who has a heart after God's heart? Listen to what David says. This is priceless. Verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's, say with me, heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I mean, do you hear almost the arrogance of this kid? And Saul looks at him and says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your highness, <laughs> with all due respect. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it from out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Anyone in this room ever do that, by the way? I feel like I would have heard the story, okay? Like, you got your little boy with you in the woods, and a lion comes out and grabs him, and you grab him by the man. You're like, you get my, go, my kid. Boom, lion's like, I'm so sorry. Bear comes up, takes your daughter, and you're like, don't you touch my daughter. Punch in the face. Bear's like, I repent of my sins. I'm going the other way. Like, animals are afraid of this guy. Clearly, this is why people said, oh, Saul, the, the Lord's with this kid, right? And he gets in front of him, and he says, let's be straight. I've killed lions, I've killed bears. I have gone up to them and I've taken the, the little ewes and lambs out of their mouth, punched them in the face, taken by their beard. Trust me when I say, this is nothing. But he's nine foot nine and he's strong and he's got a javelin and all these other things. And David's like, do you see that little space that's open, right, on his face? That's all I need. That's all I need, okay? If I can take down a bear or a lion, this chump, I've got his number. Verse 36, 
Your servant has struck down both bears and lions and bears. And this, I love this, uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Saul, somebody needs to defend against this guy. He is mocking you, mocking God's armies, and mocking God. And if you won't do it, I'll do it. Because honestly, this is like another day shepherding. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and you're going to need God's help, so the Lord be with you. What do you see when you see Goliath? If you had to stand up before him, if you had to look him square in the face, walk up to him, would your heart be beaten out of your chest? Or would you have such utter and complete confidence in who God is that if he said to you, you'll, you'll win. If you fight in my name, I'll, I'll give you the victory. Would you go in front of him with that kind of confidence? It's interesting because the, the, the uh, state of David almost seems to be fearless without any anxiety, without any nerves. I mean, I don't know about you, but to stand before the king of Israel who's already erratic and kind of insane at times, that's a nerve-wracking thing. But David goes up to him and he just speaks with such boldness and such faith because he is a man who sees the world as God sees it. He's a man who has a heart after God's own heart, and David's heart is the lens through which he sees everything, including Goliath. David looks at Goliath, and he says, yeah, God could take care of him. That's easy. Oh, God spoke him into existence. God could easily crush him in a heartbeat. And David sees the world through the lens of God's heart, because that's his heart. And I love this. All of the warriors, all the men of valor, all these strong, powerful men with muscles and swords and armor and everything else, it's a kid shepherding, bringing food to his brother who walks in and says, I got this. And how do you think all the other men feel? How do you think his brothers feel? This kid is the one with the boldness to do it. I love David. And don't you want to be like David when everybody else is running, when everybody else is petrified? Don't you want to see whatever's in front of you the way God sees it? It's so easy. God could overcome anything at any moment. God controls all things. There is nothing too big for him. There's no amount of financial struggles that you have, relational struggles, personal struggles, identity struggles that God cannot overcome in any way, shape, or form. And we look at them and we buckle under the pressure. What will people think of me? And the heart who is hard after God sees the world just differently. They just see it differently. There is peace there is joy, there is love, and these things are growing. There is a patience to this heart, and the heart after God's heart starts to see the world the way God sees it. And I tell you, God isn't afraid of the world. God isn't afraid of everything that comes before him. I mean, God made them, and we come in his name as his kids. Will he not defend us? Will he not give us what we need to do what he said, what he asked us to do? Every time. And David knows this. What do you see? Next week, we're going to probe deeper into the heart of David. And we're going to answer a big question, which is, God, how do I understand my heart? And how do I join with you to get a new heart, to become a man or a woman after your heart? I want to close with this challenge. Figuring out what's in your heart, I think, is one of the most difficult things to do. Because Let's be honest, the majority of us do not want to know what's really in there. Now, this is where I want to say amen, but don't say amen. Most of us do not have the courage or the bravery to do what it takes 
to really take a hard look at what's going on inside of us. And the two ways that we've talked about measuring your heart, it's in what you do, not your intentions, not what you wish you would have done, it's what you do. And it's also your attitude, how you perceive the world. And oftentimes, we love to paint our own selves to the best possible lens. I want to give you a challenge. Don't do this lightly. If you're not ready to do this, don't do it. But the person often who knows your heart the best, not your intentions, but your heart, your decisions and your attitudes, it's the people you live with. So if you're a kid, I dare you to go to your mom or dad and say, tell me what you see in my heart. What is my attitude and what do my decisions tell you about the things that I desire the most? Now, they're not going to have all bad things to say because most of you are not all terrible, evil people, right? Um, But the bad things, the hard things, the difficult things, those are hard to hear. And everything inside of us is going to want to defend ourselves. But, 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 but. And it doesn't matter because if you're given the perception, right, that's what people are seeing. And there's value in that. And my challenge to you is maybe you're a kid, it's your parents. If you're a spouse, depends on the quality of your marriage. Be careful here, okay? Um, Some of you, you know what I mean? Um, But for many of you, it's your spouse. For some of you, um, it's a really, really great friend. If you're single, it might be your roommate or your best friend that knows you and sees you through the best and the worst. I challenge you, when you're ready, put yourself, position yourself so that somebody has the freedom to help you understand what's in your heart, the good and the not so good. Because if I'm going to be a man or you're going to be a woman after God's own heart, I need to figure out what's standing between me and being a man who's after God's heart. And that's hard. And I want to just tell you that it's not a slow process or a quick process. It's a very arduous, sometimes painful, slow process. And it's why we avoid it. And I'll tell you, many of you will say, I got this. I'll do it on my own. I'll do my own little heart check. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And your heart's desire, your idols of your heart, their desire is to preserve themselves. And the heart has this uncanny ability to trick ourselves, to deceive ourselves all the time. Which is why sometimes if we're going to get a real good, honest heart check, we need to bring people in from outside who love us and know us. Let's pray together. Lord, I, uh, I'm particularly um, convicted. Lord, my heart and my attitude, my decisions, um, even just looking at David's life, uh, Lord, there are, there are gaps, there are cracks, there are um, places I just need to deal with, and that's just what I can see. Lord, I pray for each one of us, myself included, that you would gently but purposely expose what's really inside of us through your word, through your people, through prayer. And Lord, as we just take a good hard look at what's inside of us, God, I know the temptation will be self-condemnation. But Lord, may we remember that you have paid for our sins. That even as we stare our inadequacies, our insecurities, our fears, our broken hearts in the face, Lord, you love us, you paid for that sin, and you're forging us. So Lord, would you please do what you need to do to help us see what we need to see. And then God, I pray you would teach us how to partner with you to become the men and women and students and children who have hearts after your heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.